You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording from Empire and Ecologies, Trans-Imperial, Trans-Historical and Trans-Regional Natures from the 17th to the 21st century. This symposium took place on the 1st and 2nd of July 2021 and was funded by the UCD Humanities Institute's seed funding scheme and the European Research Council through the South Hem Project. Panel 2, Disaster and Environmental Crises, was convened and chaired by Elise Bulfin and featured Steve Asselin, who presented on The Providential Genocides, Nature as an Agent of Imperial Racial Logic in Fantasiac Apocalyptic Fiction, Anjali Razakolb presented on Epidemic Ecology, What is a Forest Fire, and Jade Munslow-Ong and Matthew Whittle presented on Species Extinction and, stroke as, Colonial Biodisaster. First thing I want to say welcome to the Disaster and Environmental Crises panel and thanks so much to Megan and Sarah for putting together this um, very timely and important conference. And then to um, also thank all of the panellists for all of the work that you can see they've put into the papers, the pre-recorded papers um, and the insights that are in each. Um, the format of the panel briefly will be the panellists will each give a kind of roughly eight minute overview highlights of their papers um, then we'll have some questions and discussion between the panelists um, and the chair and then towards the end about 10 or 15 minutes from the end we will open it up for general audience Q&A. Um, I'll do a bio of each panelist before they give their paper overview. I'm just going to go alphabetically so I'm going to start with you Steve. Um, Steve Asselin is an assistant professor at Brandon University in Manitoba, Canada, and I'm not sure how affected um, you are by the current heat dome um, and the, the disastrous events taking place currently in Canada, Steve, I hope not too badly. Um, Steve's research interests include eco-criticism and speculative fiction. Um, and his publications, for example, um, on the use of economic theory in fantasy act disaster narratives to criticize runaway capitalism. Um, these publications have appeared in um, journals such as Gender and Environment in Science Fiction, the New Centennial Review and Science Fiction Studies. He's currently working on a monograph about the origins of disaster fiction in the 19th century. And um, his Twitter handle is, um, in fact, Disaster Scholar, meaning he's an ideal member of this panel. So over to you, Steve. For um, today's panel, I was presenting some research in progress, pardon me, um, that I um, am sort of tackling as uh, one of my future projects here, um, specifically looking at um, race and disaster um, and specifically more so for this panel, pardon me, um, looking at uh, apocalyptic fiction and the kind of um, racial fantasies that come along with it. Um, so race and disaster fiction is um, an area that is uh, under vigorous development right now, especially by um, scholars who work on contemporary narratives. Um, so post-colonialism, journalism, um, 
political science, uh, even geography, um, all of these people who are looking at these things because narratives matter. Um, and I have been trying to sort of backtrack, um, as is my usual shtick, um, some of these concerns to the 19th century uh, by looking at uh, these three texts in which uh, humanity is almost wiped out and then looking at these sort of constituents um, racial makeup of the survivors. Um, <clears throat> so I, I, my presentation showed three of these texts. Um, uh, George Griffiths, Olga Romanoff, um, um, bars uh, within an ace of the end of the world, um, and MP Shale's The Purple Cloud. Um, if anybody has found other texts of this nature, please let me know um, as I continue to sort of try to expand um, my uh, corpus. <clears throat> what I have essentially found here um, as, as I uh, begin this particular research is um, that um, these scenarios offer um, racial fantasies of white exclusivity. That is to say that they um, represent scenarios in which um, the earth is devastated, humanity is brought to the brink to uh, extinction to such an extent um, that the racial makeup of any sort of future version of humanity um, is distinctly um, racialized, um, usually, and that is to say, um, by having the survivors be only white people. And then, um, as we saw in um, the presentation, um, only very specific white people who, according to 19th century racial science, um, were the good version of white people, that is to say, um, Nordic, Anglo-Saxon, Circassian, um, and so forth, um, rather than as uh, contemporary racial science would have had it, um, supposedly inferior versions of uh, whiteness and certainly not um, any sort of racial others um, who are usually presented as antagonists um, in, this, in these sort of narratives. The net effect of these scenarios and one of the reasons that I've interested myself in them um, is that they in many ways um, represent revisions of um, genocidal war narratives, the future war invasions that were very popular as a genre in the late 19th century, um, that um, presented this kind of apocalyptic struggle between the various races as they were constituted at the time, um, except that whereas these future war narratives, even when they um, deploy weapons of mass destruction in supposedly self-defense of a nation or a race, um, still involve the deliberate use um, and, and um, therefore associated guilt of genocidal actions. Um, these stories present scenarios in which none of the characters involved um, need to take on that sense of culpability um, for uh, the genocidal events that take place in the story. Instead, um, it is attributed to nature um, or very often to God, um, that these are simply things that have happened or else um, that they have been willed to have happened um, by um, some kind of greater entity. And indeed, all of the texts suggest that to um, um, one extent or another. Um, there's often uh, room for ambiguity, you know, in, in Purple Cloud, the character may simply be insane um, rather than <laughs> providential, but um, this is uh, the suggestion that this kind of genocide is indeed um, vindicated by higher powers, whether that higher power is read as um, social Darwinism or the divine. Um, in these scenarios, therefore, um, social Darwinism becomes 
Darwinism in its original form by casting um, supposedly natural catastrophes um, as the cause for um, the competition between and then the ultimate uh, victory over um, uh, within, pardon me, um, the competition um, um, between human races. Um, and what inevitably happens at the end of these stories is a kind of reenactment of the original colonial story um, of Adam and Eve venturing out of the Garden of Eden. So there is a, a particular enclave um, where um, individuals, white in this case, uh, manage to survive the apocalypse and then they will um, go out and repopulate the world. So um, a, a global version of the European colonial enterprise um, here um, that is enabled by the complete absence of any sort of racial other or indigenous population um, leaving the earth um, a, a blank from a humanistic point of view um, so that this um, European fantasy of, of complete totals, um, complete colonization um, and white exclusivity, as I call it, um, can be enacted. I think that's my time. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, uh, Steve. That's um, a great summary of the paper. And there's just there's so much I want to get in there and discuss with you. And we definitely need to talk about um, more narratives where there's just last people left. I'm sure there's more of those. Um, I'll move on and I'll introduce now um, Anjali Raza Kolb, who's an associate professor of English at the University of Toronto, um, where she teaches postcolonial literature and theory and poetry. Anjali's research um, explores how science, medicine, natural history, and other kinds of colonial knowing reshaped literature, culture, economy, and politics. Her new book, just out recently, Epidemic Empire, um, with the University of Chicago Press, uncovers the history behind the dead metaphor of the terrorism epidemic. Uh, it looks at documents of public health, policy, immigration, law, as well as novels, poems, and films um, to trace the, um, I suppose, genealogy of this metaphor through imperial um, and geopolitical discourse. And Anjali is also a creative writer and essayist. And I'll turn it over to you then, Anjali, to give your summary. Please forgive me, I'm gonna to be toggling between a couple of screens um, and try to show you some things. So this has already been an incredibly exciting day and thank you for including me in the discussion. I'm speaking to you today from Lenape territory in Upper Manhattan in the historically black neighborhood of Harlem that I've been lucky to call home for the last 22 years. So I'm tasked with giving an overview today of my pre-recorded talk, which is called Epidemic Ecology, What is a Forest Fire? And I thought I'd share some main ideas and portions of that piece alongside a few clips and images that I hope will supplement and deepen for those who are able to watch in advance um, and also hopefully provide points of interest and intersection for those who weren't able to watch in advance. Um, so happy to um, elaborate on any part of this in the discussion. The thinking I'm doing lately is a kind of a bridge, revealing continuities that I hadn't hitherto noticed or been fully cognizant of between my recently published book, Epidemic Empire, which situates the casual use of terrorism epidemic metaphors and their ilk after 9-11 in a longer imperial history of actual epidemics, counterinsurgency, health management, the study of epidemics, disaster ideology, demographic and information hegemony, 
So this is what the previous book is about. Um, and the thinking I'm doing at the moment is kind of a bridge between the, the book that just came out and a new manuscript that I'm working on now on Marxian special commodities and the phenomena of thing theory and commodity biography in the age of climate collapse. The book's three sections are going to be on sugar, water, and world literature. The touch point between these two projects lands squarely in the theme of this panel, extractivism and disaster thinking. One of the most interesting ways that public discussion has evolved over the course of the last year and a half is that it is now fairly commonplace for us to think about zoonotic diseases and spillover events where these diseases cross over into humans as being part of the broader system of ecological disturbance and disruption motored by global capital, deregulated markets, and infinite profit extraction. This was already a feature of the kinds of narratives that Priscilla Wald has called the epidemiological thriller. Just look, if the screen sharing works, at the tidy final scene of Steven Soderbergh's 2011 Contagion, which has enjoyed a critical renaissance in the last year. Here we see the mystery of a pandemic that has unraveled life across the globe that, and quickly reveals itself in the simple logic of local deforestation. An American corporation's bulldozer, the very corporation the film's Patient Zero, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, works for, fells palms in a waning twilight, the bats roosting in the trees flutter off and find their way to new homes and new foods. An unsuspecting pig eats a morsel of bat-chewed banana, an unsuspecting tourist shakes hands with the man cooking that pig. The tale is neat, the xenophobic moral is simple. American greed disrupts lifeways, careless Asians with unhygienic practices spread this damage farther and wider than we imagined possible. Exotic eating habits have also entered the archetype of racialized disease origin narratives, even in the work of writers who are otherwise scrupulous about the science. I look at bestseller Sonia Shah, often a very careful writer, shuddering at the presence of snakes in a Chinese wet market. These are some of the images that we're seeing in circulation in the early days of COVID. The global wildlife conservation warning against uh, exotic eating habits and wildlife trade. The title of a Ferris Jebber piece that I'll talk about in one moment. And a little segment of the Sonia Shah text that I'm talking about. I look at bestseller Sonia Shah, often a very careful writer, shuddering at the presence of snakes in a Chinese wet market. Science journalist Ferris Jebber, borrowing Orientalist tropes in his reporting on COVID that he otherwise carefully avoids. I also look at Paul Farmer's recent book on the 2014 Ebola outbreak in the Kissy Triangle in Upper West Africa and the connection that he makes to disrupted care practices and forest environments that lead directly out from diamond mining practices there. This is an image of one of the um, diamond mines that he's reading in Sierra Leone. Zoonotic diseases that become pandemics are the disasters of colonial and neo-colonial extractivism. Only very recently have medical historians felt any compulsion to include the origin story of cholera, the first worldwide pandemic, and the disease that occasioned the establishment of the discipline of epidemiology, as well as sanitary internationalism in the deforestation of the Sundarbans by East India Company troops and laborers in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Thinking about zoonosis and the way that zoonotic pandemics are increasingly written about as a flood of disease or a rising tide of poor health has brought me back to one of the theoretical vertebrae of my book, namely the insight of Ranajit Guha in his prose of counterinsurgency that historians of the empire in India often wrote peasant rebellion in the terms of natural history. Speaking of the Santal and Bidroha uprisings and a flurry of writing about these events and adjacent ones, 
Guha writes that in the colonial record, they are said to, quote, break out like thunderstorms, heave like earthquakes, spread like wildfires. And though he doesn't return to consider the figure further, they also infect like epidemics. In other words, he writes, when the proverbial clod of earth turns, this is a matter to be explained in terms of natural history. In Epidemic Empire, I spent a lot of time thinking about the naturalization and organicization of history that is at stake in the figure of rebellion as disease, specifically in the period of high imperialism. I showed how the very concept of epidemic and its methods of study are wedded to colonial history and epistemology. Reaching back to the foundations of colonial discourse, to its administrators and recorders of history who favor what I call a disease poetics of empire. I also show how the figure obscured forms of political of colonial violence and extractivism that caused both massive epidemics and widespread resistance to empire. I was mostly focused on the dehumanizing and depoliticizing effects of this rhetorical gesture and what that might tell us about the war on terror as a neo-colonial war. But I also began to be curious about what, it, what was so natural about these natural disasters and if we might think them differently now that we have accelerated them whether we might read agency and causality back into what looked to be a de-agentifying metaphorics. In other words, what is a fire, an earthquake, or a storm in the late stage cascade of the geological, meteorological, and oceanic transformation of the planet that began in the 15th century? What indeed is an epidemic? As Sonia Posmentier points out in her work on nature and agriculture in Black American and Caribbean lyric, quote, cultivation and catastrophe do not oppose one another, but intersect. Cultivation in the form of enforced agricultural labor has been a social catastrophe in and of itself. Environmental catastrophes in turn have yielded rich traditions of art, music, and poetry, end quote. Since ecological crises and natural disasters have provided the blueprints for imperial history and an understanding of political agency therein, we would do well to interrogate their obfuscating effects and dissimulating motives. It bears repeating in this moment that one of the motivating factors in the very late adoption of contagion theory by British officials in India is that miasma theory or blaming the environment was much less disruptive to forest clearing infrastructural projects on which taxes could be levied and trade. So the image you see here is one of the sort of um, pastoralizing images that was part of the rhetorical campaign of rendering deforestation and village construction a kind of project of therapeutic empire. Um, we see here in the sportsman's handbook of 1880, the way in which that discourse was attached to a kind of adventurous um, or, uh, or ecological um, kind of explorer's narrative in the projects of empire. Although this work is fairly new for me, I want to end with the same sort of gesture I ended my longer talk with, which is thinking about the origin myth of the sugar plantation in Madeira and how the cultivation of that land for sugarcane by enslaved peoples in the 15th century began with a baptismal fire. Whether or not the deforestation of the island was due to a seven-year conflagration, legend holds that plantation making was rendered possible by this natural disaster or a man-made disaster that quickly got out of control. In recognizing the ongoing proliferation of disease metaphors as mostly a hermeneutic mess that yields little critical purchase, I'm also in mind of how this foundation myth brings something like the ecological disaster of the plantation or of sugar itself as an epic defining commodity back into contact with disease. 
Both, as I have said a couple of times, are the effects of colonial resource extraction and large-scale planetary transformation. And both paper over this story in the language of disaster for which no one can be strictly held responsible. And I'm thinking here too of the way that Steve talks about responsibility and culpability. This is another function of counterinsurgent prose, perhaps not one that Guha anticipated, but one that seems unavoidable to us now. And I'm sorry that I took a little extra time. I'm gonna stop here and I look forward to the discussion. Thanks so much, Angelina. So I'll move on and I'll introduce our two uh, co-speakers for, for the next paper. That's Jade Munslow Ong, um, who is a lecturer in English, um, specializing in the 19th century at the University of Salford. Her research interests include global modernism's empire and the post-colonial, animals and the environment in world literature, and political radicalism in creative communities mostly focusing on Olive Schreiner and other South African writers. And she currently holds an AHRC fellowship for a project on South African modernisms. And she's co-author with Matthew Whittle of the forthcoming Global Literature and the Environment, 21st Century Perspectives, which is due out um, with Rutledge, I think, at the end of the year. Is that right? Next year. We're really thrilled to have you both with us to, to, um, to give us a kind of a glimpse into this book um, before it comes out. Um, Matthew, uh, her co-author, Matthew Whittle, is a lecturer in post-colonial literature and director of the Centre for Colonial and Post-Colonial Studies at the University of Kent. Um, his research concentrates on post-colonial and global literatures, with a special emphasis on the climate emergency, extinction, decolonization, and migration. Um, and as I said, he's Jade's co-author on this book, which I know they're going to um, talk a little bit about one of the uh, case studies in one of their chapters. So over to the two of you. Thank you, Elise, for inviting us, and to Steve and Anjali for your, your brilliant papers. Um, and thanks to Matt, too, for recording our video. I I, by way of explanation, I, I broke my leg and spent a week in hospital, so Matt had to do all the work on our behalf, so sorry about that, Matt. But um, I'm back now, powered by painkillers, and um, can recap our, our paper, which came from a section of chapter four of our book, Global Literature and the Environment. And, and as a book, it's, it's designed to introduce students to the topic. So we've had to really kind of simplify and streamline our central claims for, to make it as kind of accessible as possible. But then in each of the chapters, we do try to dig down a little bit more into the complexities of the theories and the case studies that, that we look at and, and do some close readings. So our, our two leading claims in the book are, are simply that, um, that global literature facilitates effective engagement with environmental issues, expresses resistance and envisions solutions. And secondly, that literary studies is uniquely positioned to marshal its vast creative and intellectual resources in support of a sustainable planet. We, we do know that it is something of a platitude to say that reading builds empathy and imagination, but as we face the realities of the climate and ecological emergencies, we think that any and all um, kind of resources must be mobilised to address these vast planetary issues. And, and this means literature and literary scholarship too. So um, the way we've organised our book is designed to support this particular endeavour. 
Um, and, um, and because we, we, we like to imagine that, that all teachers of, of literature um, believe somewhere in, in, the, in themselves that, that, that books have the power to change the world, um, even though we kind of feel that, it, we often find it kind of quite striking that the methods, modules, degree programs and pedagogies that we use don't always obviously support explanations for why we read or why we should read for the environment. So the categories that we use um, to organize uh, literary studies seem to emphasize the whens, the wheres, the hows and the whos of literature rather than the whys. So we tend to organize things like units of teaching according to author or period or genre or gender or nation. Um, and we cluster texts together in these ways, even when those groupings reinforce rather than dismantle barriers to empathy and imagination. So in pursuing the idea that literature can bring to life global environmental ways of thinking and being, we suggest that as, as critics, as teachers and as students, we should endeavor to read as widely or globally as possible with the support of a framework that focuses attention on preserving and protecting the interacting elements of the climate system. So air, earth, water and ice and life. And we think that using these topics as organizing devices will also help us to overcome some of the linguistic, temporal, spatial, national, gendered and other divides so often reinstated in, um, in the ways that we teach. Um, but hopefully um, by introducing that as a kind of a way into thinking about literature, we won't um, or we don't endeavor to elide these differentials of power or unevenness of experience that occur with interacting life forms, um, earth, air and water. Um, so I'm just going to give a, a, a quick overview of the example we use in, in the paper. So uh, the example we looked at in our paper comes from the fourth chapter of the book entitled Life. Uh, and this final chapter, in this final chapter, we frame species extinction as both a consequence and a further cause of climate breakdown. And we looked at how global literature enables us to establish the colonial context of mass biodiversity loss. Um, so now we've seen that there's an emerging consensus that we are in the midst of the, what's being called the Earth-6 mass extinction. Um, we have an extinction rate um, that was only last seen with the mass dinosaur extinction 66 million years ago. And this stark reality has led to some radical responses to conservation over the last couple of decades. Um, in placing emerging conservation programs in dialogue with literary analysis, and with criticism that's rooted in post-colonial disaster studies and environmental humanities, we feel it's, it's possible to generate an awareness of the ethical, political and cultural implications of those conservation programs. Uh, so the one example we looked at uh, in the paper is, is the initiative of de-extinction science. This is a science that seeks to bring extinct species back from the dead using resequenced DNA. Um, so critics such as Ashley Dawson have warned that this initiative could, in fact, be an example of what he calls disaster biocapitalism, whereby corporations own the patented DNA of revived animals. So the extinction story of the Tasmanian tiger provides a productive case study in this regard. It's an animal that was systematically hunted to extinction by European settlers in the 19th century and has since become iconic. So the date that the last known Tasmanian tiger died is now designated as Australia's National Threatened Species Day. 
But as such, the Tasmanian tiger has also now become a candidate for the extinction. So in our paper, we turn to the 1999 novel, The Hunter by Julia Lee. This is a text that imagines a future in which the Tasmanian tiger's DNA has become a precious resource to be extracted, to be patented, and to be used commercially by a shadowy Australian biotech company. And to achieve its profit-driven aims, the company hires a hunter to track a newly sighted Tasmanian tiger and to kill it in order to return with its blood and its ovaries. Importantly, Lee's novel also presents the ideology of settler colonial progress that killed off the Tasmanian tiger as the very same ideology that dehumanized and extinguished Aboriginal Tasmanians in the so-called Black War of the early 19th century. So in our reading of Lee's novel, we showed that the history of ecocide is bound up with indigenous genocide in Tasmania. Both are far from natural and are instead examples of colonial bio-disaster. And we demonstrated how literary analysis can help frame the extinction stories of individual iconic species in relation to the globally destructive effects of empire and the broader consequences of biodiversity loss for humans and for non-humans. So at the same time, the hunter helps to examine how newly emerging conversation, uh, conservation strategies can function as forms of disaster biocapitalism rather than confronting and addressing the capitalist imperial causes of human and non-human extinctions. Um, so I'll leave things there for, for that uh, summary of our paper. And I think the, the, the discussion that we are having works really well with the two other uh, papers on this panel, which I loved hearing and, and really enjoying kind of engaging with that work as well. Thanks, Alicia. Thank you, uh, Matthew and Jade. I'm, I'm a big believer as well in the effective power of um, imaginative creative fiction to create those, you know, to, to allow us to see through somebody else's eyes, to walk in another's shoes and to do it through um, the power of the emotions, making an emotional connection. And I know, um, as you say, it is a truism, but there's lots of interesting empirical research being done into just how far um, I suppose we we can we can push that assumption, um, and I suppose the kinds of cultural work that these narratives do, um, both now and in the past, is something that I'd like us to think about um, in the panel. So as I looked across the papers, one of the things that I noticed was that I think each really contributes to um, revealing and considering the unnaturalness, if you like, of the idea of natural disaster, which is just one of those trite phrases that we kind of trot out without thinking about, well, actually, you know, placing the disaster in the, the chain of disasters that emerge out of certain ways of organizing um, the way we live. Um, and sort of the implication of empires old and new in causing, exacerbating and capitalizing on unnatural disasters. And of course, the uneven effects of disaster on humans and the non-human world. Um, I think some of your papers perhaps speak more to the affordances of global imaginative literature for revealing these aspects of the entanglement of empires and ecological crises and helping us think through these. Others focus more then on analysing pernicious narratives, which, for example, worked to shore up 19th century imperial um, ideology and practices. Um, Angelis' trope of anti-imperial resistance as a disease in imperial discourse um, and fiction as well, I think. I think you cover fiction too, uh, Angelie, in your book. Um, or 
disaster fiction tropes as a means of enabling eugenicist racist fantasies, as Steve has been discussing. Um, so these are the kinds of things that I'd, I'd like us to think about um, as, as we uh, discuss with each other. Now, I have loads of questions for you, but I wanted to allow you guys to ask questions of each other uh, first if you, if you have them. So just feel free to unmute and go ahead if you do. Angelie, go ahead. Uh, it's a, it's just it's somewhat of a small question and then an observation just because um, my brain is sort of spinning with the exciting overlaps of these papers. But um, Stephen, in watching your talk and uh, listening to you speak today, I wondered if you had um, looked at or thought about uh, Shelley's The Last Man, which seems like a text that's very much in the tradition of, of what you're describing. And the so that's just sort of a like, please talk about it if you have, because I'm, I'm so excited to see the intersections with the text that you were looking at. Um, and then an observation, I don't know what to make of it, um, but uh, there's like a really strong recurrent trope in early, um, in early Sunderbund's writing about the significance of the tiger. Um, and I thought it was really lovely to just see the, I don't know, resonances between that kind of, um, like the extinction sort of paradigm papering over or going back and revising um, the kind of, ecological catastrophe, but like specifically tiger hunting as an expression of colonial masculinity. Um, I don't think I have anything clever to say about it. I just thought that was sort of amazing, this uh, this connection and um, the sort of charisma of that of that animal and its um, sort of name mates, even if they're not um, phylogenically related. Yes, I love Shelley's Last Man. Um, <laughs> that was definitely something that I had in mind while I was listening to um, your presentation as well um, and thinking about epidemic as metaphor, um, given that this is, Last Man is, is probably the first real pandemic novel out there um, in terms of these uh, fictionalized scenarios. Um, I've written on Last Man in the past about um, um, the attempt to gender nature and, and nature's resistance um, to um, any sort of human ideological imposition. In terms of uh, and how it relates to my project, one of the interesting things about Last Man, it's a novel set, what is it, 2097, something like that. It's set in the far future, but um, Shelley did not anticipate globalization. Um, and so it's um, a narrative um, from a racial perspective. It does talk about immigrant populations in Europe, um, but ultimately it is not able to afford the global perspective um, on the apocalypse that um, texts in the late 19th century, by the time that empire has spread and technology has allowed for that kind of global perspective. And so the protagonist of The Last Man, Lionel Verney, we are told is the last man alive, but really he has only covered a certain portion of Europe. It is entirely possible that there are other human survivors. Um, it is possible that there are entire communities of survivors um, out there elsewhere in the world, which is always something that I've had in the back of my mind when I get to the end and his melodramatic proclamations about um, carving uh, his legacy in the Roman statuary um, and thinking, what if this is just another version of the Black Death and Europe is depopulated, but the rest of the world sort of um, lives on in some kind of Kim Stanley Robinson, years of rice and um, salt scenario. Um, so it's, it's fascinating from that point of view in terms of being um, 
an artifact of the extent to which globalization had proceeded and had not yet proceeded in that it can address um, pandemic. Um, and um, one of the reasons why I was thinking about Last Man is you were talking about that first cholera pandemic um, in your paper, um, which was happening even as Shelley was writing Last Man, it was making its way towards Europe. Um, so it's globalized enough to think of a pandemic, um, but not um, to give us a sort of narrative perspective um, that would be globalizing and um, give us a full view of what has happened to humanity. Not to turn this into a Shelley panel, but I'm like totally struck then by how the somewhat more global perspective of, of Frankenstein really plugs into Jade and Matt's paper about the reanimation of, of corpses or this kind of revivification. I don't know. It's um, maybe Shelley is at the bottom of everything in a certain kind of way. I suppose there's also, um, if, if I can jump in, there's also, um, there's, there's, there's last man novels where there really genuinely is just one last man, if we trust Fernie, um, and, and they, I think, are extinctionist in their logic. So they're not they're not doing this kind of mass extinction as a mechanism for evolutionary progress trope that we see in the other stuff. Um, so maybe that's why her novel is, is a little bit different there. She does at one point as well suggest that people have been going off to the Orient for luxuries and kind of look at the consequences of this kind of behavior. So she's kind of She's just starting to see those kinds of connections that are so much to the forefront um, in the later texts. Jade and Matt, did you want to come in there on, on the connection with your paper? Uh, or have a question? Go ahead. Yeah, I just had a thought, and coming back to um, Angeli's uh, point about hunting as well, I thought um, one of the kind of interesting crossovers was the way in which, um, so colonial hunting has, has this long history which is of course, it's bound up with um, gendered and class identities, um, which then led to conservation movement. You know, the kind of international conservation movement is rooted in the idea that white Europeans are the, you know, the kind of should be the guardians of, of, uh, the, of the environment and that national parks should be based on the kind of old aristocratic idea of, of parks in Britain. So I thought there are ways in which that sort of, uh, that, that history links with what Steve was talking about, you know, this kind of imagining at the end of the 19th century that it is the white uh, upper class, it is white, kind of white upper class society, particularly, uh, which should, which, you know, which should be the guardians of this kind of new world. But also links back to what uh, you were talking about, Anjali, in, in the fact that, you know, as we've seen in the last couple of years, there's been this discourse that emerged at the start of the pandemic where people were saying that you know we are the virus as in there's this kind of undifferentiated human species which is the virus and i think a lot of our you know our interests and in, and in this research is highlighting the ways in which uh you know pandemics and broader kind of ecological disasters need to be thought of in terms of particular dominant human groups mm. that are causing disasters it's not human it's not the human species it's this particular dominant human groups uh, that collect around uh, gendered identity class identity racial identities which are dominant and which are which are which regard themselves as, as superior and somehow the guardians and that's the worry around the extinction science the extinction science is being led predominantly by western european american kind of science but not actually taking into account indigenous perspectives 
or post-colonial perspectives. I thought that was that was an interesting kind of way in which these papers do possibly speak to each other. Um, but yeah, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is that there's different kinds of cultural work that these um, that the texts that you're looking at do, both in the 19th century and in contemporary discourse. Um, and I wondered maybe if some of you could speak a little bit more to the tropes that you see in, in um, this kind of discursive area, whether in factual or fictional discourse, that shore up um, destructive um, in environmental practices linked with either imperialism or neo-imperialism globalization. So what are the, the, the kind of pernicious tropes? Maybe it's just worth lingering a bit or highlighting uh, Matt's point about the mutability and availability of the language of the virus. Um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not totally sure, Matt, if what you're suggesting is that the kind of quick turn to name humans as the virus or us as the virus. And in the US, we saw a lot last summer, um, really politically um, uh, defensible, by which I mean something I utterly identify with, um, turns toward racism as the virus or inequality as the virus. And I'm I'm curious, I mean, it's it's certainly stretched across the British the British and French imperial archives, um, this kind of um dehumanizing naming. Um, what what falls out of the naming of so-and-so is the virus or the cops are the virus or you know white supremacy is the virus. Um, is a strong sense of uh, of culpability, of agency, of responsibility. I mean, I'm, I'm also thinking about the way in which the survivors in Last Man's stories are not just racialized; they're also pinned to a certain kind of philosophical tradition, right? So it's 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 specifically. I mean, I was really struck by I haven't I haven't read it the the Ace book, but um, the Vassar girls and the Oxford boys, right? I mean, it's not just about race and class; it's also about a certain kind of training and identification. Um, uh, ontologically, philosophically, a sense of, of who the subject is or what the subject is. Um, I have more to say about ways in which anti-colonial movements have sort of taken up these figures, but instead of focusing on the examples, I'm sort of curious just what all of you have thought over the last year as we've heard these phrases um, coming through again in so many in so many instances, both ones that are politically abhorrent, but others where you're sort of like, yeah, I, I you know, I I agree with this position, at least, if not this particular comment. Would you guys like to go ahead and answer that? And then we've loads of questions coming in in the chat, I believe. Um, sure. I think just to maybe make a connection between the two points that you made, Elise and, and Angela, you know, talking about these kind of pernicious tropes of disaster fiction and talking about people as a virus, it's it's a it's a kind of a dehumanising genocidal language that seems to be kind of emerging. You know, it's, it's a classic trope, isn't it, in, in kind of when you're preparing for genocide to start casting people as animals or as bacteria or as um, different forms of nature. I know that, Angela, you mentioned it in your paper too. You talked about um, the Moore and Patel argument. When, when people are constructed as um, natural, then you don't need to pay them for their labour or you don't need to, um, you know, they, they can be kind of constituted in that way. And, and I did think it was interesting that that is a pernicious trope of disaster fiction to make people part of the natural world or natural environment or, or virus. And um, I did have a question for, for Steve that kind of related to that. I don't know if I've got time for it, or do you rather just go to the... the no, you can go ahead. You can yeah, go. okay. Um, and it was interesting, I thought, Steve, in your paper, how you talked about these fantasy texts that um, showed how nature was either pressed into the service or otherwise kind of enacted the desires of the ruling classes or nations. 
but it, it's so interesting that the techs that do this are now kind of marginal. I had to like spend a while Googling who these people were and like and looking up these texts. Whereas the texts by colonial writers, kind of that are beginning to kind of attack, attract a bit more attention from the period, or in fact some canonical writers like Wells and Conrad actually express colonial resistance. They actually kind of or colonial anxieties or kind of resist the idea of people as as nature and i wondered you know why have they survived why have they got more had more attention in the text you look at and is it as is it as simple as you know kind of a, an intellectual snobbery about popular texts or or is it that you know the racial kind of dynamics of it are so distasteful and that's why they're not survived or is it something else going on Sorry, I forgot to unmute myself. Um, yeah, I think the high-low culture divide um, may be at work here. Um, I do sort of take the appreciation that um, these more overtly racist texts can uh, very often be more distasteful. Um, and, and for all the problematics of canon forming um, can sometimes will not sort of succeed in the same way. Um, one can think of, of as a kind of midpoint, Jack London's plague stories, um, like the Scarlet Fever, um, which is better known, but still not um, sort of one of the kind of prominent texts in uh, the canon, uh, because it comes from a more canonical author, but um, still dwells in this, this area that, um, quite frankly, the formalists did not like <laughs> of um, speculative fiction um, and overt ideological uh, work rather than um, the kind of more subtle embedded encoded um, racism of uh, the more typical canonical writers, I think. Um, the difference between, you know, overtly stating um, the supremacy of the white race um, in some kind of almost um, Nazi style eugenics uh, versus uh, being a little bit um, more subtle about it. Mm. Not, not to mention Wells does say some pretty dubious things in some of his nonfiction writing um, along eugenicist lines. But um, moving to the to the, the questions from the general audience, because there's some great questions coming in. So I, I'll start with one for Matt, Jade and Steve. Um, when you talk about the power of literature in bringing to light these environmental issues, it raises the question of who gets to write about these narratives. One of the main criticisms of eco-criticism is how post-colonial writers, especially in the African continent, are left out of these discussions. So I think that's something that the whole decolonization project is trying to address, particularly in 19th century studies. And it ties with the question that I wanted to ask you as well um, about narratives of resistance, but not just by people like Wells and Conrad, but by voices beyond um, those kind of uh, white authors. So um, maybe... Any or all of you would like to address that? Um, I definitely can, can start talking about how we address that in the book. Yeah, because we <clears throat> were writing a book on global literature. We were, we were given the title, um, but really we're looking at Anglophone literature and literature in, translation, in translation. So we are thinking about only texts that are kind of uniquely privileged because they are available in, in that in that global literary marketplace and we are bound as authors by these kind of contexts and processes that you know embed global inequalities in creation production circulation of literature um, i guess the way we deal with it is we you know there is the kind of the the amir mufti argument who says you know 
something like wherever English goes in the world is, is dogged by various others. So we, we, we do kind of take that as a kind of, um, you can take that argument forward. And yes, we, we do look at, at African writers. Um, we try to um, select different kind of um, texture, you know, as many global locations as we can. So some of the African writers we look at is we'll, we'll in our chapter on earth, we've got three sections, soils, minerals and metals and oil. And um, in soil, we'll be looking at um, the, the kind of the writing and um, writing by Peter Abrahams, for example, as, as a black um, South African writer who, who wrote who wrote Mind Boy. Um, but we 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 are trying to trying to draw on the work of, of writers globally, indigenous writers, um, colonized peoples, or even you know venturing into Japanese haiku. <laughs> so um, so we are trying to get some some coverage there. And um, can you see? different strategies there for um i think one of the things you talk about in your in your account of your work is um resistance to kind of um colonial imperial capitalist habits of structures of feeling and and um and so on yeah just uh, yeah to add to that i think um one of the things that the texts that we choose to look at they do you know that they, they are written in, in english as jay says or, or at least translated um but uh, you know, if you, just to use two examples that we look at in the in the book, so one would be Indrasin has animals, people. Another would be uh, Alexis Wright's uh, Swan Book. These are texts which are written in a particular vernacular, um, which does kind of, um, in many ways, uh, kind of critique the role of the reader as well. You know, and, and you know, animals, people is written from the perspective of, you know, from Rob, Rob Nixon calls it the kind of post-colonial picaresque, which actually confronts the reader, keeps calling the reader eyes, confronting the marketization, the commercialization of a kind of post-colonial life or in that kind of exotic, that, that kind of recirculates exoticism. So we are turning to those texts which confront readers as well. You know, these aren't comfortable texts to read. Um, or this one book being an example of a text, again, written in English, but by an Aboriginal Australian writer who adopts a particular um, indigenous cosmology and, and form of storytelling and actually changes what the novel can look like. You know, it doesn't, doesn't fit into kind of more traditionally, traditional kind of realist modes of the novel that someone like Amitav Ghosh says is, is not capable of, of speaking to climate change. You know, this one book is a, is a text which actually actively uses a, a kind of indigenous Australian cosmology and form of storytelling, which is again is difficult for a non-Aboriginal, non-native reader to read, but is 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 important for that reason. So I think those are the kinds of texts that, that that we turn to as well. Thank you very much. And Angeli, did you see um kind of forms of anti-colonial res resistance in writing in, in your work when you were looking at the Imperial Archive? I know you're mostly mostly looking at ones in the dominant imperial discourse. Yeah. Um... The couple that um, that come up in the in the epidemic book, I mean, where it was hard to find stuff was was really in the 19th century. Syed Khan's um, sort of essay on the Indian mutiny was an interesting uh, rebuttal to the idea that um, essentially that there was no political cause behind the behind the uprising, the first Indian War of Independence. Um, the other kind of cluster of texts that I look at that are either turning this trope on its head or 
deploying it to different um, legal ends are Jamila Bupasha's memoir, um, which was sort of co-authored by her, her lawyer, Giselle Halimi and Simone de Beauvoir in the context of the Algerian resistance in France. And then, um, sorry to have to say this and do this, but I, I think there's some really extraordinary work with trope reversal in Salman Rushdie's The Satanic Verses. It's the one of his novels that I still find to be incredibly useful and really um, politically interesting. Um, that book is, Epidemic Empire is um, in some ways an ecological project, but as I move toward the new project, I'm also thinking about things that I think might be more directly in conversation with this question. Um, Animals People is certainly a book that I've been thinking about and reading Rob Nixon and Jennifer Wenzel, who's gonna be speaking at the conference tomorrow. Um, I, because there's a chapter on my book in, on water, I'm also thinking about what I'm calling the post-colonial bottle novel or the post-colonial water novel. Um, so Mohsen Hamid's book, um, How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia, which is about the commodification and privatization of water. Um, and then in Collision, Bofan, to answer specifically the question about African post-colonial writers, um, Bofan's book, Congo Inc., um, is another one that, that really fascinatingly speaks to like animals, people addressing eyes, it really speaks to the expectations of Western readers, um, in addition to uh, bringing some very interesting um, language and imagery around the commodification of natural resources, again, with water um, in that novel, particularly. Uh, there's th those are the ones that I would say are like really getting a lot of leverage um, with regard to this question. Thank you. And I'm so glad the panel's being recorded because I wouldn't be able to, um, to keep track of all of those. And um, Steve, what about from a 19th century perspective, the popular fiction? I mean, it's really hard to find this stuff. I, I've come across um, Rakea Hussein's Sultana's Dream, which kind of offers an alternative um, account of um, a sort of a feminist utopia where they live in a more harmonious way uh, with the natural world. But I don't know if you've come across other examples that kick against and the dominant imperialist um, narratives. They're hard to find because, of course, um, publishing, gatekeeping, right? Um, it was so much difficult um, for persons of color, women, or under any other minorities to gain access to those same publication tools um, as people in the dominant groups. Um, I have, as part of you know the preliminary research on this project, been trying to find counterexamples um, to uh, the kind of narratives that I have uncovered. Um, Anglophone literature does have these particular underlying supremacist assumptions. Um, I agree with Jade and Matt um, in this regard. I have come across some less racist scenarios. Um, for instance, in French fiction, there's a novel uh, called um, dans un bloc de glace um, by Boussinard, um, in which the protagonist awakens to find that Europeans have gone extinct um, and humanity is now um, a blend of African and Chinese. Um, and it is not depicted in a negative way. It is kind of heterotopic. The civilization has some problems, but overall is an improvement on um, 19th century living. Um, so that, that was interesting. Um, but to find this specific scenario that I'm looking at, I don't think we 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 have to wait until 1920 and W.E.D. Du Bois, The Comet, um, in which a, a black man and a white woman are the sole survivors uh, in New York City. And there is a brief moment of um, racial harmony, utopianism, um, as they sort of abandon their, their racialized roles only for that moment to be destroyed when survivors from outside the city um, come in and reimpose uh, racial hierarchy um, on these two survivors. Um, so yeah, I am still looking. 
You won't you won't believe, uh, Steve, that MP Scheel, of all people in some of his really virulently racist Yellow Peril novels, actually does say that the ultimate destiny destiny of humanity is for the white race to die out yeah. and for there to be a blend of, of all of the other. He calls it ruby colored. Um, a new superior ruby colored race will um, arise. Of course, he does this in the middle of a Yellow Peril novel. So it's just a very small counter counter strain. There's more you can see ambivalence in some of the other novels rather than anything that would be strongly resistant, I think, to the the dominant um, ways of looking at these things. I'll I'll have to track that down, particularly M.P. Shields' particular racism as a self-loathing mixed-race individual is is always something fascinating to um, see. Yeah. Um, So a, a final question here for Jade and Matt is about the differences between colonial and post um, or neo-colonial capitalism. You note that neoliberal forms of biodiversity revival have reinscribed accumulative logics, but colonial capitalism was ostensibly liberal, not neoliberal. Um, It says, I'm open to a rejection of this quite heavy-handed framing, but what do you make of these different historical contexts of extinction discourse? Um, that's a good question. I think, I mean, broadly, so there, I'm, uh, that part of the paper is drawing on Ashley Dawson's work in a really excellent short book, uh, The Heroic Extinction of Radical History. Um, I think the main kind of distinction we can make there, and this this is a kind of broad distinction, but is that is in, in terms of kind of neo-colonial, neoliberal forms of wealth accumulation are truly globalized. And obviously we think of the, the kind of late, uh, the colonial moment, late colonial moment, as um, one in which was the kind of genesis of, of globalization. But I think the worries that that Dawson, that Dawson is raising here is that this is now becoming a, this is now kind of the ways in which new conservation initi- initiatives could actually bolster um, neoliberal forms of globalization, um, which of course are rooted in a history of colonialism, but are, are distinct in many ways because of its, you know, because they are kind of built upon that kind of very firm um, uh, kind of globalized networks that we have that, that characterize the late 20th and early 21st century um, and speak to exa- exactly what um, uh, Angeli was talking about in terms of the spread of pandemics as well, of course, you know, the kind of the, the, the spread of the pandemic that we've seen in the last couple of years has in part uh, seen, you know, been, been enabled by the kind of the free movement of capital and the free movement of elites rather than the, the free movement of people. And so I think that's that's one of the kind of main distinctions we, where we can place those those initiatives within a kind of particularly contemporary neo, uh, neo-colonial or neoliberal moment. Thank you, Matthew. It's important to nuance, I suppose, the difference between the two different contexts. Um, con- continuities and change. Um, I'm thinking we're going to have to to draw to a close now. I don't know if any of you have any final points that you'd like to make in uh, to, to get into the packed discussion. If you uh, just to say thanks to uh, to everyone for the, for their papers. Um, it's great to see that this work being done, and also for for the questions as well, and for you guys for, for organising. Thank you. Um, I think, yeah, I, I think we could all um, have talked for a good bit longer, um, but there have been amazing 
uh, synergies and, and overlaps between the papers and the whole sort of very ambivalent idea of disaster and what disaster can and can't do, I suppose, between um, as a trope itself and environmental discourse between kickstarting us into action or um, kind of dooming us to apathy or reinscribing um, structures, uh, pernicious structures in the aftermath of perceived dis disasters. I think we've kind of addressed all of those aspects of it. So, um, so I'll close the panel now and um, hand back to Megan, who probably wants to tell you what's ha happening next. Thank you all so very much. Um, and again, you know, a virtual applause to all of you. I really, really appreciate you, your participation in the panel. Thanks for listening to this UCD Humanities Institute podcast. Our podcasts are available on iTunes, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities.